Mark chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, you go ahead and you can turn to Mark chapter 12. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have children, um, you know, we have two, uh, we have three older children, and then we have a, our granddaughter, and, and they love to read stories. Now, I don't know about you, but um, when they read those stories, they bring the same book to you over and over and over and over again. Now, you get bored with it, right? But they want, read it again, read it again, read it again, and then they start telling you the story. My, my granddaughter, uh, she, she'll come up and she'll we'll, we'll be reading through the Jungle Book or whatever book it might be, and, and she, I start reading it, and she stops me. And she says, no, Papa, and she starts telling the story on her own, and it kind of becomes her own thing. Um, and her imagination is running crazy. My kids, they did the same exact thing. You know, when they were younger, they, they had all kinds of stories that they would tell. And, you know, we love to tell stories, and we love to read them and watch them all um, over and over and over again. You can probably think of a book that you love to read, a, a movie that you could just watch, you know, a hundred times, and, and you could quote the entire thing, but yet it doesn't get old. Well, that also happens a lot in Jewish history. And, and what they would do, in similar way, there were parables, there were allegories that would be told, and the children of Israel would hear all of these stories. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is going to talk about a vineyard, and he's going to talk about a vine. And, and so when he talks about that, to us, we talk about vineyards. And we know a little bit because um, all over... Um, the western area, and if you head out into the mountains of, of Virginia, there's all kinds of vineyards out there and wine, uh, places that you can go and test and try all kinds of wine that's out to the west. Um, so we know a little bit about that, but when, when they talked about it, it was something that was very, very intense for the Israelite children. The grapevine is an illustration of Israel. These stories became their favorites, and they loved to read them. Parables are alluring, aren't they? Because they tell us a story and there's a hidden meaning many times inside of them. What we think back about different parables, we think about allegories that, that we maybe read as we grew up. Uh, there was one about a power-hungry pigs that take over all of the other animals and they oppress the other animals. We know that as what? Animal farm, yes. Um, we have another one, the Lord of the Rings and all of the allegories that are laid out inside of those. The, the parable of Jesus that we're looking at today, it draws from a, a well-known allegory in the Old Testament. Um, these are not just some tame little children's stories. One commentator writes this, he says, rather than seeing parables as the Christian version of Aesop's fables, they are incredible explosions of bi biblical truth. Jesus threw them at his opponents and consoled his followers with them. Each parable denoted with a very clear message. So a parable is a story with a punchline. The unusual twist is what gives the parable the impact. There's this twist that happens, and we're always looking for those little twists in the plots whenever we're reading things, and we go, oh, plot twist, and here it comes. And that's exactly what we're going to see, because... When, when, when the people of Israel, they're going to hear this parable as Jesus is preaching it, and, and people are like, yeah, that's right, and, and they think that they're the landowners, and they, that they have all of the power, and then Jesus is going to go plot twist, and he's just going to turn it all over on them. Now, before we get to Mark chapter 12, I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 5, and I want to read verses 1 through 7 to you. 
when we read there, it says, Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Now, the word here for wild grapes, for wild, meant stinking things. Now, I don't know about you, but having wild grapes... um, I have wild strawberries in my yard, and, and they're little, and they look like they would be great, right? And then you run them over with the mower, and it doesn't do any good. And, and it, even if you were to try to eat them, they're probably not going to be, be the best things to try to eat. We don't want wild strawberries. We want the freshly grown strawberries that have been cared for and tended and taken care of. And the same thing was true as, as we read this out of Isaiah. Go to verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedges and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So with that story, as we read from Isaiah, as our background, we're going to go to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Jesus preaches a historical power, uh, a parable with a powerful twist that leaves the, the leaders hysterical. By the end of this, again, they're going to continue to try to find a way to kill Jesus. Jesus isn't backing down. That's the, that, that, that's the awesome part of Jesus. No matter what is happening, he knows his life is on the line. Yet even when he knows that his life is on the line, he never backs down from preaching the truth. Please remember that. And as Christians, we need to see this example. Even though the walls may be crashing in on the church and and we know that the political landscape probably isn't the best for the Christian right now, but guess what? We need to preach it. Everything that's happening in the world right now wants to put Christianity out of the way, but we won't let it because we hold to what Jesus Christ has taught and he has preached. And here's the thing. They have tried for thousands of years to put God's people and Christianity out of existence, and yet it has lived on. So make sure that we keep preaching the truth. That is what we have been called to do. So as we get into this, I want to give you the main characters in what we're going to read in verses 1 through 9. So we have the vineyard, that is God's kingdom. We have the owner of the vineyard, that's going to be God himself. There's the tenants, those are the religious leaders. Now they don't see themselves as that, so we got to watch this. There's the servants, those are going to be the prophets. There's the beloved son, that's going to be Jesus. And then Jesus is going to switch the metaphor completely when we get to verses 10 through 11. And we're going to have the builders, those are going to be the religious leaders. And then we're going to have the cornerstone. Again, they think it's them, but the cornerstone is who? Jesus, that's right. 
So let's jump in. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And, it, uh, excuse me, and he began to speak to them in parables. Now, as he's doing this, where Jesus is preaching, he's up on the Temple Mount, and he's preaching, and there's going to be the temple behind him, and he, for sure, they're going to be able to see from their vantage point, they're going to see the Mount of Olives. So they're going to see this whole side of this mountain that is just filled with a vineyard, okay? So, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a, a, put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to its tenants and went into another country. So the owner is going to leave. He's going to build it and he's going to leave and he's going to lease it out. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to, to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, as we ponder this parable, as we break this parable down, I believe that there are three main points that we see here. Attributes of God. The first one, we're going to see God's goodness. We're going to see God's goodness through all of this. Look again at verse 1. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So those listening... Again, likely we're facing the Mount of Olives. They knew exactly what Jesus was laying out as he saw this. And there was a huge, if they were looking at the front of the temple, there was a huge vine that was on the front of the temple as well. So they see all of this around. So this story is almost a living story for them. And listeners would immediately know at this point that Jesus was talking about Israel. Psalm 80 verses 8 and 9 shows God's goodness when he transplanted the tender vine from Egypt to Canaan where it flourished. We read there, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. This was Israel being planted right here in their country. So fences provided protection. It was protection from wild animals, wild boars, other animals that would come in, people from coming in and destroying all of it, trying to keep out. Now, I don't know about you. How many of you have a garden? Well, we have had to have, we, we've tried to have gardens for years, um, especially where we live now. The soil is horrible where we're at. And, and we could, now the good thing that we could always grow, we could always grow weeds. Like the weeds were awesome. But when it came to actually trying to plant and grow tomatoes or, or peppers or anything else, cucumbers, by the way, they're all out front and you can take them. I grow them. I don't eat them, okay? But they're all out there. If you see something that you want out there, please take. They're on the welcome stand. 
But all of those came not because our, our soil was so good, but it was because we had to build boxes and we had to put a fence around the outside of it to keep the deer from coming in, the rabbits from coming in and finding their way in to eat all of it. We had to build boxes and to put good soil inside of it to where the plants would actually grow. And so that's exactly what's happening here. The soil is going to be tilled. A fence is going to be built around it. There's security, there's storage, there's shelter, all of that. And the tenant builds this, or the owner builds this and gives it over to the tenants. I mean, they should feel fortunate to work for such a good owner, right? I mean, he has built them everything. He has given them everything that they could possibly imagine. And he leaves and says, here, this is for you. And you think, again, you think that they would just be so happy. In a similar way, God is good to us, isn't he? Psalm 73, verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel. He's truly good to us as well. Because 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Given us everything we need for life and godliness. So the arrangement with the landowner would lease his property to the tenants. It was very common in the culture. The, if we go back to Song of Solomon in uh, chapter 8, verse 11, it says, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its, first, or for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. So what would happen is the, the owner of the vineyard, he would have it all laid out. And what he expected was anywhere from a third to a half to be given back to him. He's put all of the work in. He's put all of the effort in. He's even planted it. And he says, here it is. All you have to do is tend it. All you have to do is harvest it. Take care of it. And then I expect in return a third to a half of it to come back to me. So God's goodness is laid out as he does this. And that's exactly what happens with this, this first part of the parable. Now we come to, to verse 2 and we find God's grace. God's grace is just laid out for us. So when the season came, now here's the important part. When we read this, we go, oh, he planted a vineyard and immediately it produced a, a good crop, right? No, that's not the way that it worked. So when we go back to the Old Testament, we read in the law, we go back to Leviticus chapter 19, it would have taken at least four years for it to produce anything. So they have to tend it, they have to care for it, they have to take care of it. The first three years, they were not to eat of it at all. They were just to, to tend it and care for it and let it just grow. On the fourth year, it would produce a great harvest, but that first fruit, year four, was to go, it was used usually as the first fruits to go to the temple. And then on year five, it would produce for them and they could enjoy the, the fruits of their labor. So when the season came, it took a while for this to actually take place. So when the, when the time was right, the owner says this, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So he sends them expecting a return from what has been laid out there. Now this word fruit again is being used and, and we see the fruit that Jesus has already cursed a, a fig tree it's another symbol for Israel. We've talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It didn't have any fruit, right? Well, now they actually have fruit, but they don't want to give it back to God. And when Jesus uses the word servant, those listening would have immediately thought, servant, prophet. That was the way that they would have thought it. These the servants were sent by God to grow their faith and to search for the fruit that was laid in front of them. 
Hear the passion behind God's plea. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 5. He longed for them, listen, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened. God pleaded, listen to my servants. Listen to my prophets. They're trying to steer you in the right way so you will have good fruit. And they chose not to listen, and now they're not listening as well. And that's exactly what happens. What happens to the first servant? And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. This means that they treated him with contempt. They scourged him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. This owner had a legal right to what was his, yet they weren't going to give it up. In verse 4 we read, Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. It means that they kicked him in the head. They beat him. I think when Jesus was saying this, he very well could have been talking about his cousin, John the Baptist, who was a prophet, who was beaten, and who had his head cut off. And I believe that's exactly who they were thinking. And remember what we just talked about last week of what was happening. They were trying to question Jesus, and he turned it around on them and asked about John the Baptist, asked if he was one of the prophets of God, and they couldn't answer it. Remember that? That's going to come up here later in this story. Now, at this point, you would think he sent two servants. You would think that the owner would be ready just to destroy him, right? Be honest, how many of you would be ready to go in and completely destroy all of those servants? Come on, be honest. Oh, some of you are, I'm so graceful. Okay, I'm glad you are because I'm not. Okay, this is where I'm, righteous anger coming out at this point. You've killed two of my servants. I'm ready to come in, but what's God do? And I'm so glad that some of you are like, nope, I have that grace inside of me. Again, he sent them another servant, and they struck him in the head. And then we go to verse 5, and he sent another, and they killed him. So they've sent, he sent at least three already. They've beaten, sent away empty. They've kicked in the head of another one. And now they've killed the third one that's sent in. I mean, if I'm the owner, I'm sending in the SWAT team. I'm sending in the A team. I'm done with them. I'm ready to take over my vineyard. It's time for you guys to get. It's time for you guys to go and to get out of here. But we see again, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. In general, again, go back and think about the prophets of God and what would have happened with them. Most of us would rather just get rid of the messenger than hear the message. When we hear something that we don't like, Hey, what, what do we say? If, if you're the one delivering the message, hey, don't kill the messenger. I'm just delivering the message. But it happened to God's people. Elijah was driven into the wilderness. Zechariah was stoned to death. Jeremiah was beaten and thrown into a well. It is believed that Isaiah was sawn in two with a wooden saw. Uriah was killed with a sword. We go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 through 37. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. That's what happened to God's prophets. 
over and over and over again. Everyone listening to Jesus was thinking that the owner would have been totally justified in wiping out all of those tenants that were taking care of that vineyard at that moment. They did unspeakable things. Martin Luther once said, If I were God and the world treated me as if as it treated him, I would kick the wretched things, thing to pieces. Many times we feel the same exact way. Now again, we want grace shown to us, right? We want gra- when we do evil things, when we do sinful things, we want grace shown to us, but if somebody does something evil to us, uh, no God, show your wrath. But we again, we see God's grace being played out here. Look at the first part of verse 6. He still sent another, a beloved son. This is like the language of Genesis chapter 22, verse 2. God says to Abram, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent who? His one and only son. When we read this, we see exactly what Jesus is trying to bring across Our minds should also go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 11, when Jesus was baptized. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, who I am pleased, well pleased. God speaks uh, about his son in whom he delights. The father repeats this at the transfiguration, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, this is my beloved son. Oh my goodness, sorry, my daughter decided she wanted to try to call me. Mark chapter 9, verse 7, this is my beloved son, listen to him. The end of verse 6 says, finally he sent to them saying, they will respect my son. He had one left, his only son, his beloved son. They'll respect him, right? He has to, they, they have to at least accept him. The word for finally means last of all. It means that there is no other. You know what that tells us about the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God? It tells us that He is the last of all. The Son is the final and ultimate demonstration of the owner's grace, of God's grace. What that tells me is that that, that Muhammad wasn't the last prophet. Joseph Smith was not the last prophet. The last one was Jesus Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the one and the only. Jesus left nothing unsaid that the Father wanted us to hear. Please know that. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when the tenants see the son, they huddle up and they decide to do what? Look at verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. The phrase, come, let us kill him. It's exactly what happened to Joseph by his brothers. Go back to Genesis chapter 37, verse 20. They hated their younger brother and they said, come, let us kill him. The tenants assume that the owner has probably died. And there was, there was a, a clause that if they owned the land, or if they were 
holding a piece of the land that it became theirs if there was no heir left. So come, let us kill him, and all of this would just become ours. Verse 8 tells us what they did. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. To, mean, to, to say that they threw him, it means that they forcefully expelled him. It's the same language that Jesus uses when, they, when, when he um, kicked the demon out and cast them out. John 1, 11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And to leave someone unburied, they just took him and threw him out of the vineyard. To leave someone unburied was an incredible dishonor. We're reminded that Jesus was crucified where? Outside of Jerusalem. They took him outside of the city gates to kill him. Hebrews 13, 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. God is good. God is gracious. And that leads us to the third truth. God will always get the glory. God will receive the glory. As we learned last week, Jesus frequently employed probing personal and provocative, provocative questions. We see in verse 9 that Jesus asked a question that is both probing and provocative. What will the owner of the vineyard do? What will the owner of the, vi- the, the vineyard do? The religious leaders, at this point again, they think that they're the owners. So they know what they would do. That they, they're just going to go in and they're going to wipe everyone out. They think that they're the owners. He answers his own question with a question, again, or with an answer, that they're formulating in their own minds. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Because the owner had been so good, so gracious, so many times, he is totally justified in destroying all of those that rebelled against him. In the mind of the servants, the owner was so distant, so disengaged that he would never do anything to him. How many of us feel the same exact way about God? Maybe at some point in our lives. We feel like God, yeah, he's there. And there's a lot of people that they're known as deists. Well, they just... God created everything, he spun it like a top, and then said, hands off, I'm done. And many times we feel that way in our own lives, right? We feel like God's not there. We feel like I'm crying out and I'm yelling out, and no one's listening to anything that that I say. Perhaps they thought that he would keep on giving grace over and over and over again. Sometimes we as Christians, we think of our lives as an etch-a-sketch, right? We draw our sin all out, and then we go, oh, ha-ha, God's grace, and I shake it, and I get to start all over again. Now, I love that aspect of God's grace, that, that he does give forgiveness over and over and over again. But here's the thing, one day we will face the judgment. One day, if we have not accepted him, and we start living for him the way that he has called us, we will face that judgment. We do not want to face the second death. We do not want to, to, to be told, depart from me, for I knew you not. And here's the thing, when Jesus says those words, depart from me, I knew you not, he says that there were a lot of people that thought that they were doing good, that they were doing God's work, and yet they were outside of what 
His grace truly was. To destroy means to bring to nothing. In, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 41, we read an expanded explanation of, of what takes place here. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and to let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. This judgment came in A.D. 70 for Israel. This judgment for Israel, the temple is going to be completely destroyed. At, at this time of A.D. 70, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, when this happens, the people of Israel are going to run for their lives. And they're going to try to hide out, but there's no place to hide. There's no way to get away. Everyone will stand before Jesus Christ and face Him as either Savior or Judge. We will face Him as either Lion or Lamb. He is both. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. He is Judge, but He is also Graceful. Hebrews 10.31 says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Make sure that we are living for Him. Now the reference uh, to the owner giving the vineyard to others speaks of the gospel going out to all of the Gentiles. Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That place was just outside of the city gates. There was a burn pile called Gehana. It was there in the Kidron Valley that they would just take everything and it was constantly smoldering, constantly burning. <clears throat> and that's exactly what was going to happen. Those who thought that they were on the inner were actually on the outside because they weren't seeing God's grace as it was laid out before them. In verses 10 through 11, Jesus frames a, a very personal question to them as he changes the metaphor from a vineyard to an imagery of the sun and the stone. I love how he says that they haven't read their own scriptures. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is, a marvel, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a direct quote from Psalm 118 which the Israelites, the Jewish people, would sing on Palm Sunday. And they would, they would cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus takes this scripture and he hones it in on himself. And he, all of these religious leaders, they looked at Jesus, and Jesus was some little pebble from Galilee. And Jesus says, what I want you to understand is I was sent from the Father, and I'm the glorious rock. And not only am I the glorious rock, I am the cornerstone. I'm the cornerstone of the kingdom. The rejection and death of the Son seems like total tragedy, but since this was the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest turnaround in all of human history. And that's what we truly have to see. Up to this point, I mean, Jesus had been living and he had been doing some marvelous things. And, and, and the moment that he died and was put inside of that tomb, even his own disciples went, it's over. We might as well just pack up. We might as well hide out and get ready to go back and do our own jobs. They were, they were fearful. They were hiding because they thought that it was coming to an end and their lives were coming to an end as well. But on that third day, Jesus arose from the grave. And he set us free. And he took that message and he said, I want it to go to all of the utter ends of the world. Jesus is indirectly answering the question that we talked about last week about his authority. Because he says, I am the beloved son and the chief cornerstone. Who has the authority? I do. Where do I get my authority come from? It comes from God the Father. And how sad it is that these religious leaders that were all gathered around, it says that they left and went away. They left and they went away because they just couldn't stand to think that Jesus was this cornerstone and it wasn't all about them. We not only struggle with the authority of the owner of our lives in a real sense, but each of us have also killed the son. It is our sin that nailed him to the cross. But God continues to show his grace. And it's up to us of what we're going to do about it. Jesus uses some strong language to communicate that no one who encounters him can be the same. Either we will be humbled or we will be cast out. We have a choice to make. We either surrender to the sun or we're crushed by the stone. That's what we have to decide. So in all of this, we're, we're going to sing a, a couple of more songs, but our, our song that we're going to sing is our invitation here is called Cornerstone. And we're going to take communion. If you haven't had a chance, you can get communion on the back tables or on the side. And, and I'm going to pray for us here in just a second. And I want you to know that if you have a decision to make in your life, while we're taking communion, while we're, while we're singing these last two songs, I'm going to be in the back. The elders are going to be back. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. We would love to help you make any decision that you need to make. But I want you to know that we're here for you. And as we sing this next song, Cornerstone, it says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Can we say that in our lives today? That we wholly trust in Jesus' name. If you can't say that yet, then you need to come to the back and talk to us about what it means to give your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time. If you've already given your life to him, but you hear these words and you're like, I really don't know. I accepted him, but I feel like I've, I feel like I've walked away. There's a barrier in my life and I don't know if I've turned my back on him. I don't know if he's just stopped talking to me. I, I, I don't know. 
come to the back and we, we can talk about what that means. If you need prayer in your life, we can, we can definitely pray. Whatever decision you have to make, will you make it here this morning? Let's pray. Almighty Father, I know that there is so much going on in our lives today. Father, it seems like we're just overwhelmed with everything happening. But Father, we know that you are in control. We know that you are in charge of all that is going on. And so, Father, I just pray and ask that you please be with us here this morning, that if there is someone here that needs to accept you as their Lord and Savior, that they will make that decision to give their life over to you. If there's someone that that is really struggling with something that is happening inside of their lives, that they know not only do they have direct access to you, but they have a whole family that is here to back them up and to stand beside them. Father, I, I also ask that if there is anyone here today who has not made the decision to become a part of the family of God here at Stafford County Christian Church, that, that they will say, hey, I want to place my membership. I want to be a part of the exciting things that are happening here. And Father, as we partake of communion, we remember what you did for us, that you gave your one and only son. Father, that we can have that forgiveness, that we remember the sacrifice that was made as he went to the cross. And so, Father, as we partake of communion, we remember that ultimate sacrifice. And that because of that, we have direct access to you. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.